We're in Genesis 21. Again, my lofty goal is to make it through the book of Genesis in a year, which means that we cover a chapter every week, which means that there are going to be times that I'm going to preach for a little longer than normal. But today isn't one of those days. Maybe. So over 25 years ago, God had called this pagan man as his own. And he called him, and he'd given this man a command to leave his home and his people. And he'd given this pagan man a promise as well. He said, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and he who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth shall you be blessed. Genesis 12, 2 and 3. So the promises made to Abram on that day was twofold. One was sons, and then the second was land. And neither of those promises made sense to him. But Abraham went. And he went with his wife. And since he had been married for a while already, and since it was evident that his wife was barren, and since his brother had died and left his son Lot in the care of Abram, he took Lot with him. And according to Hebrews 11, by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him for the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, verses 9 and 10. And in all his wanderings, as he looked at that land that had been promised to him, a land that was occupied and ruled by other peoples, he couldn't fathom how he would come to own this land. But as those Hebrew verses tells us, he believed God would fulfill his promise. And he was looking forward to the fulfilling of that other promise as well, that he would become a mighty nation. And at first, Abram had to think that it would be through Lot that he would become a mighty nation. But God made it evident that he was wrong in that. And then on that faithful day, God showed up in the midst of Abraham having a midlife crisis, as we read about in Genesis chapter 15 which tells us, and after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. God had, God had taken this man to the end of his rope. God does that, you know. He sometimes takes his children to the end of their rope. And he will sometimes even take you further than the end of your rope. And Paul understood this. He experienced this. He told us, the church, this truth in 2 Corinthians verse, or chapter 12. Where, after the whole chapter 11, after recounting his sufferings, he then starts talking about the thorn in the flesh that the Lord gave him. And in verse 8 we read, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, 
I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, for insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. And Abraham was right there. This is evidenced by the fact that that promise by God, that he is his shield, that his reward would be very great, is seemingly completely overlooked. God has taken this man to the edge. And as that man stood there on the precipice of falling over that edge, it was then that the Lord showed up and told him that he should fear not, that he was the shield of Abraham, and that his reward would be very great. But for Abraham, there was, there was this other thing, this thing that he just couldn't reconcile. And Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And then in verse 4 we're told, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And to make this promise of this miracle even more miraculous, the word of the Lord then brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. So he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. But then, years passed by, and no son, which brought about that Hagar incident and the birth of Ishmael. And for Abraham, at least, in Abraham's mind, at least, the promise of the heritage had been fulfilled. But as we're told in chapter 18, God once again appeared to Abraham, cut covenant with him. And it was there that both his and Sarah's names were changed. And it was there that when God was instructing Abraham in the sign of that covenant, that that the promised son issue once again arose. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Verses 18 and 19. And then, and then God adds another layer of impossible to this impossible miracle. He said, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at at this time next year, verse 21. And then a few weeks later, God once again appears at the tent of Abraham in chapter 18, and there on his way to destroy the valley of Sodom, he stops by and reiterates the specificity in the miracle that would soon be fulfilled. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son, verse 10. And then just to make sure, the Bible wants us to make sure that we understand what's being promised here and just how miraculous this promise is. Verse 11 is told to us, 
Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So no longer was it just that Sarah was barren from her youth. Now she's gone through menopause. The impossible was now doubly so. And just to add one more layer to this impossibility, we're given verse 12 of that chapter, which says, So Sarah laughed at herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? What she's saying is, we don't do that anymore. Our body parts don't work like they once did. And both Abe and Sarah had to be thinking, not this again. I thought that we were past this heritage thing. I thought this heritage thing had been settled 13 years earlier with Ishmael. Really? God, now you're, you're promising the impossible, and not just kind of the impossible, but the really impossible. I mean, if there were varying mountains of impossibility, this one would be the Mount Everest of impossibilities. This was the perfect storm that was perfectly created by God in order that there could be no doubt that when the child was born, that it could only be of God. Truly a miraculous conception, as told to us in verses 13 and 14. When the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Because at the appointed time, I will return to you. And about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. And just in case you think despairingly about Sarah, that she wasn't a woman of faith, that she didn't believe the Lord, we're told in Hebrews 11.11, 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. She laughed, because what had been promised was just simply too good to be true. She had lived with old Abe for many years. She had witnessed the Lord doing great and mighty works in the ordinary means of grace bestowed on these two for many years. She had been there when Abe returned with the 318 men after doing the impossible. She had heard him tell her of Melchizedek. She had seen the fire and the brimstone being hurled from heaven. She knew the Lord, and she believed the Lord. But this, this promise was impossible. And so she laughed at the impossibility of it, which is what the Lord addressed when he said, is anything too hard for the Lord? And then verse 1 from today brings about the fulfilling of this promise made all those years ago. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Now, this chapter is broken up into three sections. And each section recounts a miracle being fulfilled by God. The first is the fulfilling of the promise of God to Abraham and Sarah, who had been barren all her life, who would conceive and give to Abraham an heir. 
and verses 1 through 7 cover this event. And then verses 8 through 21 cover the account of Hagar fleeing. And verses 22 through 34 we cover, cover a treaty being signed. But verse 1 again. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And as a Christian, as a child of God, we need to understand before you make a promise, before you speak offhandedly, you should think about what you're about to say. Because you shouldn't be going about promising things that you don't intend to keep. And this does include praying for people. You should not, just to fill time or to seem spiritual, tell someone, I'll pray for you, when you have no intention of doing so. As a Christian, you shouldn't make commitments that you don't intend to keep. This includes telling people, I'll call you, or telling your boss, I'll be there. Your word should be your bond. But we all know that this is not reality. That people do not keep promises by and large. But with God, with God, his promises are yes and amen. Numbers 23, 19 tells us, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Saints, therein lies our blessed hope. Because God is a promise keeper. In fact, he is the only promise keeper. Because every human, we make promises. And most people, well, at least some people, actually intend on keeping them. But in every instance, we never live up to the full promises that we make. But God God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. And verse 1 is very exacting in the words used, in the meaning of those words. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. As he said, the Lord visited Sarah. As he promised, the Lord did to Sarah. And verse 2 tells us what this means. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which the Lord had spoken to him. And in verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And you can't help but hear the joy in the recounting of what Sarah said concerning becoming pregnant and then giving birth to a son. And as she held this small bundle of joy, this miracle child in her arms, she must have just chuckled in wonder at the impossibility of it all. God had given a son to Abraham and Sarah. It was a miracle. It was something that had been promised for many years, something that Abraham and Sarah longed for. 
And this is where we would do well to make sure that we not only have the purpose for the Bible clear in our minds, but also the reason that it is given to us. Because we all know that verse. You know, the verse that tells us that the Lord will give us the desires of our hearts. And this verse here, our chapter here, proves that this is the case. God gave Abraham that desire for an heir. He, like most men, especially in that culture in that day, desired sons to carry on his lineage. But God showed up on the scene. And after many years of being married to that barren woman, promises the one thing that he desired, an heir and heritage. And as Abraham walked with the Lord, trying to determine how this would all come about, he acted in his humanity on at least two occasions, trying to work out the physically, in the, trying to fit, work it out physically in this realm, practically in logical ways. First, he took Lot with him when they left Haran. And since Abraham had no, had no children on his own, he thought, Lot must be the means that which my line's going to go on. But Lot wasn't the fulfilling, fulfilling of the promise. So then Abraham agrees to go along with the idea of Sarah and taking her slave woman, Hagar, Hagar, as a surrogate mother, through which the promise would be fulfilled. And Abraham did have a son through her. But God wouldn't go along with their plans and very stubbornly just continued to promise a son through Sarah. And in all of this, from the first call to this day, Abraham believed God. And for this reason, God counted it to him as righteousness. And Abraham, Abraham couldn't understand the means that God would fulfill his promise. He wasn't looking for this miracle. Do you understand that? He wasn't looking for this miracle to happen. But he believed the miracle maker. And this is why it isn't after the miracle of Isaac that Abraham is said to have believed God. But when this miracle happens, he is so overjoyed that this only causes him to love God more. To be more impressed with him. It's not the means or the reason for his faith. And this is the same truth that Jesus reiterated to us after his resurrection. In John chapter 20, we hear this story, the recounting of the disciples. Now the Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, wasn't with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And then eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he turned and looked at Thomas and he said, Put your finger here and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. And then we're given the purpose statement of the book of John. And by way of it, the entire Bible is then given to us. When we're told, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written 
including this chapter. These are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that my belie- by believing you may have life in his name, verses 30 and 31. And this miracle, as told to us here, is like all miracles. It's miraculous. And there's some of you here now that are looking for a miracle. Hoping against hope for that thing which seems impossible to come about. For some, that miracle is a relationship. For others, maybe just a restoration of a relationship. Maybe it's the solvency of my financial situation. For others, it's the saving of that lost soul, of that person that you hold very dear to you. And then there's others that are just despondent, going through a hard time, finding themselves in a hard place. There really is nothing wrong. And yet, I can't find peace or joy. And you're looking for a miracle. And if you haven't been there, you will be. You all, we will always, we were all going to be there at one point. Where we're hoping in, living by faith that God would come through and bring about the impossibility in our lives. But we know we need to understand that there are a couple of huge differences between what has happened in our account here and the miracles that we are hoping for. Primarily, there's one. Because this miracle was specifically promised to these people. But most of us, the miracle that we're hoping for hasn't been promised to us. But that doesn't cause us to hope any less. And this chapter, chapter 21, is given to us to temper our hopes, to focus our hope, and to cause us to understand some things about miracles. Because this miracle is like all miracles. It's miraculous. It's out of the norm. It's unreasonable. But it also came with personal pain and even some personal loss. Let me explain that to you. So any woman who has ever gone through labor will tell you it's not a walk in the park. All right? And it's a personal conviction of mine that God in his infinite wisdom, he created women to conceive and bear children because he knew that if he had given the ability to men, the race, our race, the human race, would have ended at Adam. If Adam was anything like most men, he would have thought through this whole physical process. And after watching animals give birth, he would have looked at Eve and just told her, It's best if we have a platonic relationship. (laughs) And then the circumcision that was commanded on the eighth day wasn't pain-free either. Something that Abraham and Ishmael would both attest to. And both remember when little Isaac went under the knife. And then there's the loss of sleep. You see, there is a reason why children are given to young people and not old people at least normally. 
But children are a blessing from the Lord, as told to us in Psalm 127, verse 3. But at the same time, kids are a lot of work. They are time-stealing, life-sucking, will-to-live-claiming little humans. And they are also very great representations of what faith practically looks like as they look to you to provide and protect them. And this miracle not only brought initial pain to Sarah, loss of sleep and energy to both of the parents, but as we'll see in our second vignette from our chapter, it also brings about personal pain for Abraham, for Ishmael, and even for Hagar. Verses 8 through 21. And verses 8, verse 8 begins with a celebration. And as a child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on that day, and that Isaac was weaned. But that celebration didn't come without its own set of problems. You see, that solution that Abraham and Sarah had come up with some 13 years ago was now rearing its ugly head. The slave woman Hagar and her son that was born to her, whom Abraham dearly loved, who he had reared for these 13 years, he was acting out against little Isaac. And Sarah would have it no more. Unless we get confused and wonder at why Abraham would now listen to his wife in this matter. I mean, after all, it was listening to his wife that got him in the, this trouble in the first place. It's clear from verse 12 that all of this was the will of God in their lives. But it, God said to Abraham, verse 12, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac you shall your through Isaac shall your offspring be named. It's also noteworthy to understand that Ishmael is never actually named in this account. And then the manner in which this account is written concerning Hagar and Ishmael, making it seem as if he is an infant and not a 13-year-old boy, is written this way to let us know that Hagar was what we would now call um, a helicopter mom? You, you know, one of those moms that hovers over their child that is way overprotective. And this is that second time that these women are seen as having an issue over this son who was born to Hagar and Abraham. The first time is soon after Ishmael is born in chapter 16. And there, like here, the Lord intervenes in the life of Hagar and speaks to her. And in both instances, the Lord promises miracles in the life of both Hagar and Ishmael. And in both instances, God tells her that Ishmael will become a mighty warrior, that he will make nations come from him. And the second section of our chapter today ends with the telling of the fulfilling of the miraculous promise by God being worked out in the life of that slave woman, Hagar, and Ishmael. First, in the immediate provision and protection of them in the well, and then in the telling of the life that that young man had and the wife that was given to him. Which then brings us to the third section of our chapter. This last section, it kind of seems out of place here. Like it doesn't belong with the first two sections. But then again, when you think about it, it seems like the fulfilling of the promise to Abraham is kind of buried. I mean, it, the promised son, I, Isaac, should be, at least 
in our thinking, it should be like the highlighted account here. Like maybe it should have its own chapter, but instead God tells it in just seven verses. It's like he buried the lead. And the last chapter, chapter 20, was all about an encounter between Abraham and that man, Abimelech. And it seems as though the fulfilling of the promise of God in the miracle of Isaac is completely overshadowed by these two encounters. It's sandwiched right in between of them. They're like the bookends on either side of it. It's like, it's like God buried the lead. I mean, we would think that the account that happens with that foreign king, <clears throat> those accounts, if they were mentioned at all, they would be like a side note or perhaps a footnote. And that would be the way it would be told if Abraham were the hero of our story. If this account really was about him. If that was true, then yes, that probably exactly how it would be written. But this account, just like all the account, other accounts in the Bible, are not about the humans that are, are the actors in those accounts. And when we read the Bible, we must always be looking for Jesus in it, even in the Old Testament. We are always supposed to be asking ourselves, Lord, what do you desire me to see of you in and through this account? This is the purpose and the reason for the Bible. The purpose is to reveal the reality of the God who saved you. Do you understand the Bible is not written to prove God? No one needs proof that there is God. Everything in creation proves God. And the Bible isn't written for the unregenerate either. They may read it. They may be able to sound out the words and comprehend the words of the Bible. But to the unregenerate, this is a dead book, a lifeless book. It may have some good stories in it, maybe even have some good morals contained within it. But to them, it's just truly meaningless. This book, the Bible, is written to the redeemed. It is written to us and us alone. And it is life. It is hope. And it is wonderful. And as 1 Peter tells us, it will endure forever. And as we're told in 1 Thessalonians, it is at work in all who believe. As we're told in Ephesians 6, it is the helmet of salvation and the Lord of the Spirit. And as we're told in Isaiah 55, 11, it will accomplish all, it will accomplish all that the Lord desires. And as we're told in John 1, 1, it is God himself, and it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give account. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. This Bible is written to the church, to us. But this Bible is written for God. And we know that because of Romans eleven thirty six, which tells us, For from him and through him and to him are all things. 
To Him be glory forever. Amen. Now let's look at those last 12 verses from our chapter today. Verse 22 through 34. After that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, verse 24, I'll swear. And when Abraham reproved, and verse 25, when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You didn't tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs a part of the flock. And Abraham said, or Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And he said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, this place was called Beersheba, because they were both of them sworn an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. In verse 33, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, El Elim. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. So basically the king of that area where Abraham was living came to him for a second time. And because of his first encounter with this man of God, he brings a witness with him. Because old Abe seemed to have an issue with the truth. But it was also evident, very evident to them, that God, who they did not serve, that he was with this man. And for this reason, they wanted to make sure that they would be on good terms with him. And we have to remember that the king in this realm, he had all the power. He had all the bargaining chips. I mean, he owned all the land that he allowed Abraham to live in. And yet he comes to this man seeking an accord, a peace treaty with him. And it's in this context that Abraham then decides to bring up a perceived slight by this king. Because what Abraham said to this man, who could have crushed old Abe like a worm, was that you have acted shamefully toward me in this issue over this well. A well that Abimelech swears that he knew nothing about. But an incident that was at the forefront of the mind of Abraham Abraham figured, thought, this was a personal slight. And it was just that to him. It was personal. He thought, Abimelech, he did this to me on purpose. And Abimelech once again proved to be more honorable than Abraham. What Abraham should have done is he should have come to Abimelech from the very beginning with this. If, it was, if this really was, this well was really such a big deal, but he didn't. Instead, he lived in his own mind, which is a very dangerous place to live. And he determined in his mo own mind that it was a personal slight against him. He thought, this man just doesn't like me. He can't be trusted. And this incident with this well, this just proves it. So he trots out the seven ewe lambs and makes Abimelech swear by them that the well belongs to him. And Abimelech makes this covenant with this man. And you're thinking to yourself, 
where's the miracle in this section? Because, David, you said that there was a miracle in all three sections of this chapter. I, I, I remember hearing you say that all three sections of this chapter contain a miracle. Where's the miracle in this section? I mean, the birth and, and the conception of, and the birth of Isaac, we understand that's a miracle. And the provision and protection of Ishmael in the second, okay, that's a miracle. But where in this section is the miracle? Well, that will be found in verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. You see, the name of God, the term given Moses on the mount of the, where that burning bush is, that we know is Yahweh. But literally, in the original Hebrew, it's rendered, it's rendered there as El, E-L, which means God. And this is how God revealed himself to Abel in Genesis chapter 4. But then in Genesis 14, God is spoken of in a more intimate matter. The time when Melchizedek blesses Abraham. He said there, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then when the king of Sodom comes out to congratulate Abraham and offer him gifts, Abraham flatly refuses him and his gifts is told to, and told him this was the reason. He said, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abraham rich. Verses 22 and 23. And the name used there by both men, Melchizedek and Abraham, was El Elyon, which means God supreme. And then in Genesis 17, God appears to Abraham again and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly, verses 1 and 2. And the name that God revealed himself there to him is El Shaddai, God Almighty. And in verse 33, Abraham, this very flawed individual, this man who has proven himself to be less than honest in all things, not just with his speech, his speech but now also with his dealings and even thinking about others. But he was also a man who is said to have believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. This man, after making a covenant with that king, who should have wanted to do, have nothing to do with him, a king who could have offed him without even a thought, who is well above him on the social ladder, he, he plants a tree, and there he calls on the name of the Lord. And the name that he calls on, that we are told, is everlasting God, El Elem. He's not just God, El, and he's not just supreme, and he's not just almighty. He's eternal. He's from age to age, the same. And this is why the Hebrews call God Elohim and not just El. He is El, El meaning God. But for those that know him, he is Elohim. He is God supreme. He is God almighty. And he is God eternal. And this is the fulfilling of that last and the greatest miracle found in this section of scripture. 
and you're confused. You see the promises of God, the miracles of God are all found in God. All his miracles are amazing, but they are not God. And when we trust in miracles, look for miracles, we are missing the miracle maker, and we're setting ourselves up for settling for so much less. God had promised Abraham a land and a heritage. And when he revealed himself to Abraham back in chapter 15, he promised these things. And Abraham there asked exactly the same thing that we would have asked and exactly the same thing that we ask when we are promised by God things. How will I know that this is going to be true? And God gave Abraham an answer there. He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these things, and they cut them in half and laid each half over against each other. But he didn't cut the birds in half. And when the birds of the prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that they're and that, that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring about judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoldering fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Verses 9 through 17. Did you, did you hear the answer that God gave to Abraham? And that answer was sufficient for Abraham to believe. And to us, the redeemed of Christ, the called, the elect, those that the Father has given to the Son, we too have been given a promise. You see, we have been promised to be heirs with Christ, promised a kingdom, promised a place that is being prepared for us now. And these promises are all impossible. And just as with Abraham, when we ask, how can we know that this will be? We are given an answer. And that answer is a blessed hope, as told to us in such places as Titus 2, which tells us, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly, um, lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem for us from all lawlessness and to purify him for himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Verses 11 through 14. And again in 1 Peter verse, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And to understand how this blessed hope, how this is the answer that we need, the only answer that we need to know that the promise is made to us, the impossible, miraculous promises given to us, how we know that they are our blessed hope. We have to unpack those verses in 1 Peter 1, 3-5. And to do that, we have to first look at who does Peter direct our attention to at the very beginning of that explanation? He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't look at the miracle. He looks at the miracle maker, at God, at Yahweh, at Elohim. And why does he direct our attention to God? And not to this thing that God has done for us. Why does he direct our attention to the promise keeper and not to the promise well, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And just as the answer to Abraham was found in the manifestation of God to him there, so too the answer that we need is also found only in him, in his great mercy. In his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. If you are born again, it is only by his great mercy. He has revealed himself to you. And this is the blessed living hope that we have, which is made manifest through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that hope is the inheritance that is undefiled, unfading in heaven, just like God himself is, and is being guarded through faith, not by faith. Your faith is not protecting your hope. Your faith will not make manifest the reality of the miracle that has been promised to you any more than Abraham's faith protected or brought about this miracle. And his faith was his. And your faith is yours. But it didn't start in you. And it's not kept in you. Hebrews 12.2 tells us, looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, and who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and set down at the right hand of the throne of God. One last scripture and then we'll be through. 1 John 3, verses 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. Here is the promise of God, given to all that call upon his name, all that confess with their mouth and believe with their heart that Jesus is Lord. Saints, do you see what kind of love the Father has loved you with? You were called a child of God. And not only has this been 
promised to you, promised to us. We're not just called a child of God. He goes on to say, and so we are. And the reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. We live different than this world. Our values are a bit different than theirs. Our lives are different. They don't understand us, why we come here to worship together. Because they didn't know him. And we believe. And then life goes on. The promises of God seem to fade in our hearts. The troubles of this world seem overwhelming, soul-crushing at times to us. Our sins are made evident to us, just as they were to Abraham. We lie when we don't have to. We act in less than honorable ways. And we can become discouraged. And then we start looking for a miracle. And our beloved brother, John, he had to have known these same feelings. He, he had walked with the Lord. He had watched the birth of the church, the expansion of the church, and then the persecution of the church. He watched as his brothers were murdered, as his friends were arrested and tortured. And life just kept getting harder and harder seemingly going from bad to worse until he finds himself being made a human fondue. And then after being exiled alone to the island of Patmos. But listen to the exhortation of this man, our beloved brother in Christ, John. Listen to the absolute assurance of the miracle of miracles that we have been promised. Hear how we can and should know that just like with Abraham, the promises of the Lord are yes and amen. 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. Now. Even if you're going through hard times, that doesn't mean you're not his child. More often than not, it means that you are. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know. And again, think about this man and what he had gone through. He says, we know that when he appears, we are going to be like him. Because we're going to see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And John isn't saying, verse 3, that those that love Christ are going to act pure. Because we know that this is not always the case for us. What he is telling us is that if we have been given faith to believe, and again, this is a gift from God, it's not from yourself then we can be sure that just, we can be sure, listen to me on this, we can be sure that just as he is pure, that we too will be. 
and even now are pure. And it's all in him. And for this reason, because of that, we come here and we plant our own tamarisk tree. We call on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Saints, God is desiring you to seek him, to know him in a more intimate way. This is the reason for everything that happens in your life. Why those hard things happen. Why things don't seem to be going your way. Why your body is failing you. Why you sin for absolutely no reason at all. Because he desires you to seek the miracle maker. As you're given eyes to see the miracles that your life is. And if you don't see your life as a miracle, dear ones, I'm telling you, you are missing the reality of God in your life. And the blessing is, is that when you do, as you do, you, just like Abraham and Sarah, will be given the honor and the privilege of not wondering about the miracle so much as wondering in the miracle maker. Let's pray.